Movers, shakers, makers. What makes creative people tick and how do they find and develop their inspiration? Welcome to the podcast that draws back the curtain on the inventive mind and its artistic process. I'm Emma Lister. Charlotte Maclay is an award-winning violinist. As the daughter of music lovers, she started her violin training very young and first performed a Mendelssohn concerto at aged nine. She has performed as a soloist in her native France and abroad, including a critically acclaimed London debut at Cadogan Hall in 2012, which was broadcast live on the BBC. She was artistic director of Camerata Almaviva till joining the Zaid Quartet as first violinist. A rare all-female quartet, Zaid has established itself as one of the leading chamber music ensembles in France and internationally. Uh, I wanted to ask what your first musical memory is, however you want to interpret that. I, I guess I probably have many, but when you say that, like it's the one which comes back to me is, um, you know, I started playing the violin very early on when I was three years old. So... I had a great teacher and I had so much fun playing in the beginning. And I remember I was tiny, tiny, like three or four. And we would have these group lessons where the bigger ones, the bigger kids uh, would play the music they knew. And we were just doing probably like one open string, you know, in pigs. But, and we were all walking together and playing, or it felt like it for me, the piece together. And this first sensation of chamber music of like sharing the music with other people was uh, unforgettable and I really believe this happy memory is what actually showed me the way towards um, choosing a career as a chamber musician. Hmm. So would you you'd be walking around and is everyone playing like in the same key or are you trying to sync up with everyone? What's What's the concept behind that exercise you were doing? Well, actually it was a Suzuki method, the Japanese method I started with and it started with Everything is by ear, and then you need to, mm. you, you know, you, you get to read the notes. But at first, it's all the sounds and how you play them on the violin. So it's quite an um, interesting approach, you know, you know, because you don't, you use the sensation right, rather than the brain at first, which is very good for small kids, I think. Mm. And, um, and so there is one piece which everybody knows, you know, that you've, uh, can be like a, you know, something like this that everybody knows. And the big kids, they know how to play it. And the small kids, they play just the notes they know or a little like accompaniment, just a few notes. What Whatever, you know, one could do with his own level, it was taking part of that making music together. And yeah, this was a rather exhilarating feeling, even at uh, three or four years old. I experienced a lot of ways of playing music. I played as a soloist. I was, um, I was, uh, doing a lot of orchestra, I was directing orchestras, uh, I played on my own, I played duo, I mean, I played many kind of formations, but what really um, made, makes me happy is um, yeah, the chamber music, playing music with uh, a few other people and having this kind of uh, very close relationship that you need to harmonize yourself in a way, to breathe together, to move together, uh, and this kind of search is something that, uh, yeah, makes me very happy. Mm-hmm. Um, listeners are going to be very used to me, like, equating everything with dance. But I think actually, like, training in classical music and classical dance are 
there are some obvious similarities in terms of the track you go along and then uh, the hierarchies that exist once you get spat out into the professional world. Um, but one thing that's only really occurred to me like later in my career when I started doing more like managerial stuff and producing is that I often thought of the creative in a dance studio as like the choreographer or the composer or the stage designer, whereas there is room for creativity within being an interpreter, within being someone who is a producer. Um, yeah. How do you, do you agree with me? Do you find that same path? Because, because very often um, I don't believe that you perform a lot of like music that you compose traditionally yourself, but I pre also presume that you have to find space for yourself within um, pre-existing composition. Yes, but that's a very interesting question. Something I've been wondering when I was younger, exactly as you said, I was feeling the same. I, I always felt, I was feeling a bit restrained in a way, you know, from this uh, status yeah. of being the interpreter and not the creator. Nowadays, I see things very differently. I feel like it's not about, what you do, it's about what's behind it, uh, what you are passing, like the energy behind. Because I've been to concerts that have uh, been very creative and didn't move me in any way. And I went to, um, you know, actually one of the most inspiring concerts I've ever been to, it was um, this uh, very old composer and pianist, uh, Georgi Kurtag, who was a teacher of my teacher uh, of chamber music, a quartet, a big uh, Hungarian school. He was playing with his wife. And um, so here come like old Georgi and Marta, they're like 80 years old, you know, with this um, square, you know, this uh, upright piano. No one plays on an upright piano, you know, but that's what they do. <laughs> and they show their back to the audience. So you see their backs and their fingers. So it's like the weirdest thing and the cutest thing. And you're like, what are these two old people going to do with that tiny piano, you know? And they started playing, he was playing, actually they were playing a lot of Bach and sometimes he was playing, sometimes they were playing together. It was kind of a, a journey, you know, from the beginning to the end, no stop. And little by little, I was invaded with this physical sensation in my belly, you know. The music making they were doing was not talking to my brain, it was talking to my body directly. Until I felt almost uncomfortable because it was so intense. It was almost unbearable. I'd never feel something like this ever mm. since, actually. And when they stopped, I could not stop crying for one hour. I wanted to go and say a bravo, you know. But And the level to which they were playing was so much more than what is usually stimulated when I go to a concert. They were talking to not only one layer of my, of my being, if you want, but to many others. And this is what I'm interested in now. Like, I really believe that as, as an artist of any kind, it's the energy we carry that we're sharing, which has an impact in the world. And whether you're the composer, the interpreter, this is not the key difference. The key difference is what you connect with and what you're passing on. Mm -hmm. Are you going to play till you're 80? Well, if I play like that, <laughs> I definitely <laughs> would like to. <laughs> I wish I could dance till I was 80. No, maybe not. Um, you spoke a little bit about the different formations that you've worked in, both as a soloist leading an orchestra and in chamber music. And um, for me and for the listeners, can you explain the hierarchy within chamber music in like a quintet or a quartet? And you can 
be as basic as you want to. As a first violinist, does that mean that you're the boss? So what is very pleasant about cha chamber music is that actually it's one of the only domains um, that you can actually get rid of this concept of hier hierarchy. Not many mm -hmm. people do it. And there is an old model in the string quartet, for example, which is very much first violinist being the boss and telling people, you know, their grandiose vision. And it worked very well for many quartets, uh, musically, I mean, because humanly, uh, there is also a big tradition of quartet uh, players hating each other, um, beating each other up, not uh, traveling together. I mean, because, you know, string quartet is a special formation. You spend really your life together. You work always with the, the three same people. So there is a human aspect which is um, impossible to se to separate from like the music making, um, but it's also an amazing opportunity I find to have these four people, kind of like in the micro society, finding their right space. And I think this is when you make actually really interesting. Um, I mean, there are many ways of making interesting music, but for me, interesting music, but also interesting life, which I do not wish to separate as it was a bit of like the old school model. Um, the first violinist, by essence, has all the singing lines. So he's kind of like, you know, the one who, um, who, who says where we're going musically. But the cello is like the bass. It's, um, it's, actually the secret, uh, you know, the secret boss, because it's showing where the harmonies lead. So, yeah, it's a different job, totally opposite in the register, but they really work together. They have to work together. And then the middle voices, second violin and viola, have, they are really like the actual substance of the music, you know? They are what brings the flavor, the color, the, sp the special character. Um, so you see, there isn't one which is more important than another because it wouldn't really mean anything. Uh, but what is very important is for people to fully embrace their roles, create their roles and be happy with it. And this is, yeah, what to me is a successful chamber music group. Mm -mm. And how do you set up, because you've worked with, well, you created uh, Camerata Almaviva, which is actually how we first met. We did a, a project together with Gandini Juggling and now with your uh, with your current quartet, how do you set up an atmosphere where people can fulfill these roles that you're speaking about? You're very experienced now. You must have some, not tricks, but some uh, theories, some theories of how to set up this environment. Yes, I do. A lot of people come in music very traumatized, and I'm sure you have the similar uh, experience with ballet. Uh, most people have suffered one way of another or another in their childhood in the and even later on uh, in their body uh, because it's a demanding practice which in our field is not supported or too rarely by body awareness. So people spend mm. their life trying to make a sound without taking care of the instrument making the sound. That's your body. It's not just your violin, you know. <laughs> so there's a lot of physical trauma. There is all the teaching, which very often traditionally it's like the more the master is mean and cruel, the more he's respected. Uh, yeah. All of this is still present. It's changing. But a lot of people in my generation are very, very, very um, have, uh, have, had traumas in their in their you know in their path so when i meet people or when i work with people i try to always set up an atmosphere of respect 
that everybody um, has the right to take to take the space that they wish to take. And I was very surprised, you know, because I thought everybody was like me. And uh, when I was coming in a new orchestra and I was leading orchestras, I thought, you know, I would open this space and everybody wants to talk and take part. And actually a lot of people didn't at all, just waiting for me to mm-hmm. say the things. And that's also fine, you know. Do you know what I mean? It's not, I, I kind of gave up on this concept of equality in the sense of everybody being the same. No, it's not this. It's actually freedom of being really who you are. So I think already setting up an atmosphere that people can express what they have to express and everything can be taken without, you know, cynicism or, or irony are really cruel things which are destroying people's souls. And I think in music, it's a horrible thing to do, you know. So none of that. <laughs> and um, yes, having everybody being ex- able to express themselves musically and um, and in another, you know, humanly. And more, more specifically, uh, with my quartet, with Quatuor Zaid, um, we started taking um, techniques from other fields. So from uh, theatre um, uh, warm-ups, uh, from Qigong for body awareness and also from meditation, um, which is something which actually, you know, if you are going to work with some people and start like a, a meeting or a, a work session, if you take even, it can be even five minutes, it can be even three minutes mm-hmm. to harmonize people, just like a breathing together or something, you know, it actually really changes the mood, you know, and the, the the creativity of people and the concentration and the connectivity between the group is so different because, you know, when you come to a rehearsal, everybody comes from their different life. Maybe one has a horrible day. You know, you don't know. So just to create this space, now this is a workspace which we treat as a sacred space and we clean ourselves a little bit from our, you know, our stuff to go in this space of support and create something together. I think that makes a big difference, yeah. Um, I want to talk about your your current quartet, um, Quattro Zaid. Um, you, you gave me and my son an album called Invisible, which places the works of Fanny Mendelssohn and Clara Schumann next to the, until recently, better known uh, Felix and Robert. And the first time I listened to the CD, I put it on in the car, so I, I wasn't like looking at the track listing. I just let the first thing play. And my goodness, I it was Fanny Mendelssohn's uh, string, uh, string quartet in E-flat major. And I'll be damned if it hadn't been Felix. Like, I had no idea. You know, I couldn't, I couldn't tell who the composer was. Um, it, like, to my ear, it was just as complex and full of vitality as anything that, that Felix Mendelssohn had done. Um, th- thinking just specifically about Fanny for a moment, what, what's it like to to play her work and why did you as a quartet choose that specific piece? Well, a few different reasons. The main one is the quality of the work. Um, mm. As you said, uh, this quartet is a masterpiece. If it had been written by Felix, it would have been recorded like hundreds of times and, um, you know, so to have such a masterwork, uh, which is so rarely played still, yeah. shows that there is, you know, we had to do something about it because, uh, you know, it's a piece we play in concert. Most people, as you said, have never heard about it. Maybe they've heard that Fanny exists because she's the sister of 
Felix. But yeah, they yeah. generally haven't heard this quartet. And the reaction is always the same. You know, people just... Also, the last movement is like an amazing ending. And people are just yeah, like standing like up. And it. It's so yeah. lively. It's so beautiful. It's so deep. And they love it. And it's very immediate. You know, it's one of these quartets that mm. you, you listen to it. And immediately you get it. You it, it, goes, it goes in your body. You know, you love it. And it's very powerful work. And um, so there is obviously a difference in treatment, which um, it's it's only explainable by uh, you know like society reasons, which which we know of the place of women um, at that time. And it felt the 19th century, early 19th yeah, century. and it felt very obvious that you know we wanted to record this. But just to give you an example, um, Felix works. Um, there are like maybe 30 editions, you know. So when you buy his work, it's like pitch perfect. Uh, Fanny's quartet. There is only two editions existing, and the one you play on still has mistakes. You know, mm. that's something which is impossible to imagine for like um, the music of Felix. And um, another thing is that she. Uh, apparently have hasn't had a chance to hear her own quartet before she died. So for us, this is such, um, you know, a moving, touching experience. And every time, really, like, literally every time we play it in concert, we play it a lot, we really think about her and we really play it for her, you know, because we wish, mm-hmm. we, we, we hope she's up there and she can listen, you know, because it's such a great yeah. piece. How much of her work survives? Because I presume, like Felix, you have every, like every unfinished everything is in an archive somewhere. Her work, actually, she was um, smart enough that she took over. Her parents were organizing these musical Sundays, which she took over, and she used that to play in the middle of, uh, you know, Felix music, Beethoven, a little, a little bit of her music. So she managed to kind of. We have, I think, we have most of her work. It's just the quantity is obviously. Um, much less when you have to do this between, uh, you know, taking care of the kids and uh, <laughs> and cleaning the house and being the good wife and 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 all of that. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, pivoting to Clara Schumann, who uh, wasn't related to Robert, he, uh, she was married to Robert up until his death, and there's a f- famous friendship with Brahms, but for a different podcast. Um, <laughs> she was she was in herself, in her time, she was allowed to be and was a very distinguished um, concert pianist, I believe. Um, but, and the, the piece that you have on the CD, which is Variations on a Theme by Robert Schumann, Opus 20, is, um, I presume, was not composed for strings. I presume that she was making on the piano Correct me if I'm wrong. So the reason we chose this piece is that, so yeah, as you said, Clara had a slightly different um, path from uh, Fanny because she was this this amazing concert pianist and so she was respected for this and she was supported in this. However, um, she was, um, composing was still not a serious option. So she could play. Sometimes she would play her own music, which is how she managed to create some of her um, uh, of her music, uh, chamber music and concerto. Um, but it was still, that was still not really okay, you know? And um, even Robert, who, I mean, loves her, respected her, they played music for each other, they composed for each other publicly. 
his status of composer was not something she could even think of trying to to reach or to um, to look at. Mm. Um, so these variations are we chose them as well because in this CD Invisible, uh, which is linking these four people, um, Felix and Fanny Mendelssohn and um, Clara and Robert Schumann, who were uh, brother and sister, husband and wife, but also friends between themselves. Um, ah. There is a lot. I mean, Invisible is all, of course for the women at that time, but it's also about all the invisible. Um, links all the li- invisible signs of love which are um, in the music. So uh, Robert Schumann was dedicating his um, music to Clara, his wife, and Clara is using in that, uh, in those variations, a theme uh, which Robert uh, wrote. So it's kind of like, you know, showing all these interesting, like, links of love, you know, which are really, really beautiful to see. And uh, indeed, the music is written for piano, but we had um, our uh, wonderful arranger, Eric Mouret, um, make an arrangement for us for String Quartet. Fantastic. Um, actually, another thing that occurs to me when you said the title, Invisible, um, you know, initially I was thinking of, obviously, Fanny and Clara's work isn't as well known as it should be, perhaps, but I was also thinking of the invisibility of um, people, more often women, particularly in their time, who are in these support roles, who um, bolster the careers of these, you know, big, famous, successful men. Um, there was, I mean, there's loads of, loads and loads of examples of this, but there was a mini series recently from the podcast, You Must Remember This, which is about movies. And it was on um, Polly Platt, who was um, the, for a while, the wife of a, a director named Peter Bogdanovich, who was very successful in the 1970s. And it was just kind of unpicking the legacy there and showing, you know, how much she actually did contribute uncredited to the films of his, which were successes. And, you know, quite frankly, when she, uh, after their marriage split up, you know, it wasn't as successful. So, um, yeah, there's many ways in which you could be invisible. And how great that, you know, we live in a time now where these um, these essential contributions from people in care or support roles are being recognized. I think it's amazing, but I think it's still a work in progress. And to be honest, I don't think we're sure. there yet. I mean, I was just doing this show recently and... Um, it's, uh, you know, once again, the big names, which were the famous ones, which were quoted mm. on every like single, you know, social network where the name of the, the men who participated. And there were two women mm. who did like, uh, work as well. And somehow their names were not, weren't there, you know? So I think mm. this is like the default mode and it's great what's happening at the moment. It's awareness that's been raising, but, um, yeah, it will take it will take time for the society to deeply, you know, accept this yeah. and for real equality to to be part of our jobs. Yeah, this uh, bleeds in perfectly to my next question, um, which is about. Uh, well, I was going to use the example of the uh, now recently late, uh, always great Kaya Sariaho, um, who is a, a Finnish composer. Um, she, uh, you know, she left Finland for Berlin and later Paris because she said, 
living in Finland, you know, it was such a, she was in such a small pool. She was always um, the only one, you know, she was always being defined by her gender and she was sick of being the female composer. Um, actually, the last time you and I, you and I saw each other, we were discussing her work and she was still alive. Um, yeah, she, she died uh, relatively recently at time of recording. Um, but yeah, how do we balance this conversation? Because, you know, of, of course, yes, we should be programming all, all female composers. Yes, we should be um, pushing for more equity there. But then at the same time, shouldn't they just be allowed to kind of exist um, as artists and not be just defined by their gender? Yeah, of course. But I think that's that's the goal. That's what we want to reach. But the problem is where is the society at the moment? What are the responses we get? You know, I mean... I think as long as there is such a um, small percentage, for for example, of um, of women uh, directing orchestras, it's like three or seven percent this year in Europe, um, and there are many, you know. Uh, and I agree. I mean, you can see it either way. You can be like, well, it's not. You shouldn't just take a woman because she's a woman. But obviously, but I still the problem is that what we're talking about with uh, Fanny and Clara, it's not something which just, you know, dis disappears. It's a whole history. We come from a society which has kill killed, it's a genocide of women which has been made uh, in the, in, you know, between 14,000 and 16, 1600s. Um, all the witches which have been killed, for example, were all the women who knew how to, to give birth, you know, to, to heal with herbs, to, so, and all of this is things, it's part of our past. We have a very heavy past towards the way women have been treated. And I think it takes more than, you know, numbers to actually reorient it in a way that we actually get to see that, you know? I, I was doing this, um, this very interesting, uh, we had this project with the quartet with Quatuor Zaid, uh, called No, No Dame, No Dames. And it's, um, we're, doing this participate, uh, collaborating with the countertenor, Théophile Alexandre. And we did this show with, which is looking at 400 years of, um, opera, uh, airs of sopranos, you know, like all the most amazing ones, like from uh, Piazzolla in the 20th century to a Cavalli, um, you know, like 1600. So wide, wide, um, range of very famous airs. And, um, so we were looking at these airs and in honestly, like 90% of the cases, uh, the women die on stage. This is this is what we look at. We look at them being uh, killed, assassinated, throwing themselves by the window, um, going to uh, to hell, coming back, dying again. You know, like there are so many ways. You know, or they're sick to death, or you know, etc., etc. So it really seems that you know to spend a very lovely Saturday evening, it's very nice to watch women die on stage. Um, so. I don't wish to answer the, que the question like, should we still play these operas or everybody can have their own opinion on that. But I think it's very important that what we consider, um, our common history, our common, um, our common background is something we have a critical and eyes open look at, you know, because, mm -hmm. um, we otherwise we accept things in our collective uh, subconscious, which are unacceptable. Yeah. Mm. Uh, this is a debate that has, of course, been uh, very applicable to ballet, which is littered with 
women who've sacrificed themselves or have been raped to further the plot or kind of or sort of undead or martyred. And, um, and again, you know, like, uh, should we be doing Madame Butterfly? Should we be doing La Bayadere anymore? You know, there's other, other problems there to do with portrayals of different cultures on stage, of course. But, um, you know, my, like after, <laughs> A long time thinking about it and talking to people about it, where, where I come at it from is, you know, I don't think you should, it's really in the programming, you know, if you're going to mount these big classics uh, that that maybe have some questionable story elements, maybe you need to balance it out later on on the program, you know, maybe you have something from someone with a different voice or, or viewpoint, maybe you have someone make something in response to it, you know, there's, there's a lot of creative ways of, of keeping this work alive, like, because like, we can't deny both of us are from classical idioms, there's no point in just like, ignoring the history. You know, I don't think you should just take the painting off the wall if you don't like it. I think you should leave it there and like put a caption next to it so people can look at the painting and have some context. Of course, and the um, art is amazing and the music is beautiful and the and the choreographies are amazing. But yeah, for me, it doesn't matter if there is not one answer or, or one voice. The debate is good, you know. I think we live also in the society yes. that debate is not respected anymore. Everybody has to agree. Otherwise, you're considered immediately um, too, mm. too like your voice cannot be heard and you're cut out. I think, I think it's very important to go towards each other and have different opinions and talk about it. But I think it's good that this talk he is happening. You know that all these things yeah. come to light because this is how society is alive, thinking, and not just you know driven by, uh, yeah, habits or uh, or lack of reflection. Yeah. Is it unusual to have an all-female quartet as you do in Quattro Zaid? Um, but yes, actually, it is quite rare. There are a few um, now. There was one in America um, in the 70s, 80s. Um, now there are some younger quartets who are all-female quartets. Uh, but yeah, it's it's not something so common. And um, yes. yes, it has a lot of... Um, yeah, for us it was, I mean, when we were young, we were just, yeah, it it, it comes with a few, a, a special flavor, really. <laughs> uh, like, you, you've you operated in loads of different formations, quartet, quintet, um, and, I mean, I hesitate to make comparisons between, a, like, a mixed gender quartet and one that's all, all women, because obviously there's, like, different people involved and different chemistries involved. But uh, uh, currently, like, what are the things that you need to balance um, in Quattro Zaid in an all all women quartet? Well, there is one thing which made the big switch for us is that we are we all we're all mothers, mm-hmm. and this was a big change. And I was actually very happy to be in um in a female quartet at that moment because the motherhood, as you know, Emma very well is. Such a life-changing experience, which is extremely challenging. Uh, and it's beautiful, it's amazing, but it's also very difficult at times. And to be in an atmosphere of uh, support for me uh, was so important. And I know a lot of colleagues who did not have that chance, and I see how difficult it was for them. So first of all, yeah, I would say this quality of support um 
is was very beautiful. Not that you cannot get support, you know, with with uh, <laughs> with a man. That's not the question. But yeah, there was this special flavor of this motherhood, which we still have very small kids, and I think we kind of take care of our quartet a bit like our, um, you know, uh, like our child in a way. The quartet is something we help to grow. We fix limits. We always keep it in movement. We grow with it. You know what I mean? There is this aspect of protection mm. as well, uh, not mm. to hurt, you know, which is a, it's a very loving space, you know, and I believe that's very specific of our quartets because, as I was saying, the old tradition was uh, very much not uh, very much not about this. It was about you know playing music together. The human aspect was not so much something you work on, and uh, also very often one person telling everybody what what to do. So, yeah, I think there is a um, yeah this kind of support is support, respect, love even is uh, very important for us. This season of interviews seems to be all um, people involved in music. And so I thought I'd have like one question in common throughout. And um, I'm asking people about critics and criticism. How, how do we receive criticism and critics? Um, for me, like I was saying before with artists, it's not so much the words you say, it's the, what, where it comes from what you're carrying. So I think the intention behind is the most important thing. I will never take any criticism which comes from an intention which I don't find um, respectful or or um, good intention, very simply. Um, but that being said, criticism is our everyday work with the quartet because we don't have somebody who makes us work. We make each other work. Mm. And work means being like, Maybe here you could try like this. Uh, maybe here we could change the color. So meaning not the color that you did, but the one I want mm. to do, you know. So, but the intention is because, because we know that each one of us is trying to elevate the quartet. Um, and also the work on ego, you know. Like, I think the, the string quartet is a great way to learn and work on ego to learn how to forget about your own ego because you're creating something together. And then actually when you take a bit of distance with this, this criticism is just what other people think. And then you open the door. Is it interesting to take that on? I will take it. Is it not? I will close the door. But for me, the intention is the most important because I see a lot of people who get really hurt also from criticism and also some horrible criticism being made. And I think our world is extremely extremely violent at the moment there is a lot of you know there is a lot of beauty there is a lot of creativity but there is also a lot of violence and there is everyday violence and i think the way we speak to each other it's very important to be impeccable in their in our intentions you know the way we say hello to someone to really say it with the heart not just as a habit um the way we say something and i think anything which is said from the heart can be taken well
Time now for the three questions we always finish with. Charlotte, was there a piece of art that changed everything for you? Yes. So when I went to Vienna and I saw um, the painting by Gustav Klimt uh, called Danae, it's this woman uh, with drops of um, tears of uh, gold everywhere around. I don't know. The physical sensation was so strong, you know. Um, Mm. For me, this is when I get great art. It don't talk to my eyes, my ears, or my brain. It talks to my whole body, and I get a physical sensation everywhere. How old were you when you saw it? Oh, teenage years. Transformation Mm. age. (laughs) Next question. Is there a piece of art that you don't love or even maybe like, but that you respect and you think has value? I'm going to go for the work of uh, Marina Abramovich. Uh, because I think she's amazing. I don't wish to watch the performances many times because there is a whole amount of violence often, and um, which I personally cannot take, but that's my problem. Um, but I think what her work is um, is uh, really fascinating and very eye-opening on yeah the human nature. Final question for today. What is something or someone that we should all know about? Give us a recommendation in the arts. Well... Maybe you know already, but I think uh, it's very, very good for the health to listen to Glenn Gould. (laughs) I was just reading this book about, um, you know, uh, it's a book written by uh, Murakami, the Japanese writer. And he's having this talk with Seiji Ozawa, who is a famous Japanese conductor and they're friends. And the whole book is talks about music. And um, they talk about this concept. Sorry, I'm digressing a tiny bit, but then uh, then I will stop. Promise. Okay. And they're talking about this concept of ma in Asian music, and it's a moment in the song or in the piece which is a silence, which is not written in the music, but it's shaping the music and it's a performance um, freedom to create these moments of ma. You know, and he says that the great Western artists are using this ma in their music as well. And he takes the example of Glenn Gould. And I think that's exactly precisely putting the finger on what makes him so amazing, as well as other people who have this kind of uh, energy of creation. It's having these moments which are not written in the music, but because of the way he's doing it, he's shaping uh, the, the, the silence, shaping the rhythm in a very personal way, but also because it's so deep, it's also very spiritual. Um, and that's, yeah, that's really shows a great artist. Do make sure that you check out the Zaid Quartet on their official website, quatorzaid.com. And if you've enjoyed the music that we've listened to today, you'll definitely want to get their album Invisible, which features the music of Clara Schumann next to Robert Schumann and that of Fanny Mendelssohn next to her brother Felix. The Allegro from Fanny Mendelssohn's string quartet in E-flat minor is what we've been listening to throughout this episode. Thanks so much to the Zaid Quartet for giving us permission there. Okay, thanks a lot. Bye. Okay, closing credits. 
This has been a Makeshift Company production. Follow us on Instagram at Makeshift Company and hey, Twitter at Moshma Pod. Get it? Mosh my pod movers shakers makers podcast anyway thank you very much to Zachary Manisto for the intro and outro music and for various audio tinkerings and hope you've enjoyed the show now from the cutting room floor I give you or necessarily want to see or experience again but that you respect and that you think has value yes many (laughs) 